Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, the first episode for 2021. If you're new to this podcast, we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking planes, helis and drones. My name is Andrew Sill, coming to you all the way from Melbourne, Australia, the land down under. And of course, big welcome to everybody that's uh, local here in Australia and of course those that are abroad because I do know that we have got a lot of listeners around the world and we're starting off the first episode with a bit of international flavor uh a gentleman by the name of tom laird is joining me all the way from scotland and i'll talk a bit about tom a bit more before we get to having a chat with our special guest but uh before we do let's take a look at what's been happening Well, what has been happening? Well, a lot. Uh, I had January off off the podcast just to, to recharge the lipos at a 1C charge rate, of course, keep it nice and safe. Uh, I did get out flying, went up to my house in the country, and uh, up there I've got a whole bunch of planes, generally foamies, because I'm, I'm flying off a, a ridge that doesn't have a runway, so I need something that can land on its belly or hit some long grass and not do any damage and that kind of thing, but I had... Some of the memorable flights were one it was with gliders actually. I had my night radian, which is basically I call it the two channel job: rudder, elevator, e flight, uh, glider, uh, with a motor of course, electric motor to get get you up there. And um, it's got the AS three X gyro system in it, which I, I'm personally I'm not a big fan. I think it dulls down things. And I tried to program it using the app, and I had some troubles with it. Which it's probably my fault. I should read the instructions, but. I went out and I took my son and a few other young uh, friends um, from up there and gave them all a go. They were all able to fly the glider, which was awesome. But uh, I tell you what, I got in a thermal and that thing did not want to come down. It was just going up and up and up. And I'd pull out of it and then sure enough, I could get back into it and just keep on going up. It was a, a solid, solid thermal. It just amazes me with some of these gliders, how good they can be. And you know, with these electric-powered gliders, you can really get up there and get into the thermals nice and easily. So it's not too hard. The night radian flies pretty well. I am going to take all the gain off the gyros because uh, I just want to fly it without the gyros and because uh, I enjoy that experience a bit more. But the other memorable flight is I've got this uh, DLG, Discus Launch Glider. It's a one-meter wingspan, small carbon fiber job from uh, Tomahawk Aviation called the Slingshot. And I've done videos on it and that kind of thing. And uh, I was aiming to see how far, how, how long a flight I could get off a launch. And it is smallish, this plane. It does get blown around in the wind a bit, so it's much better on a very calm day. But I managed to clock a two-minute flight, which I thought was great. It doesn't sound like much, but I'll tell you what, eking out, you know, there wasn't there wasn't much lift around and trying to eke out a, a flight. Two, meters, two minutes actually sounds short but when you're actually trying to keep the plane in the air it's a pretty long time so i really enjoyed that challenge and you know some of the flights were 30 seconds kind of thing but just grab it throw it up again and off you go so you go for it and you hardly use any battery you go for hours so i really enjoyed that and of course if you haven't checked out the flat out rc youtube channel uh then you probably don't know that i released a video over christmas time of um me slope soaring the dream flight ahi which is another model that i've reviewed before when i had the flat out rc magazine and I love that 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 slope saw. Um, I went down to a place down here in Victoria called Thirteenth Beach. I was staying down that way over Christmas at some time, and 
I actually went to a spot that I, I I saw somebody else do a video in that spot, and I actually pinpointed it on the Google Maps where it was. And it's actually a, a, a hang glider launching sort of area. And anyway, I went down there, and it was it was really it was great. I had so much fun just throwing this glider around and trying to improve my slope soaring and the aerobatics with slope soaring and that kind of thing. I would have loved a little bit more wind, but uh, still could have gone for days. Uh, so really, really enjoyed that. So gliders probably dominated my my time. I did get my T-Link extravaganza out there, the aerobatic foamy, profile foamy, and had a bit of a play at one point in time as well. I did want to get the FPV drones. Actually, I was trying to... I need to reach out to some people to help me with my FPV drone, my my Impulse RC Helix, which is a pretty old drone, but I've just finished building it after three years of it sitting on the shelf. Uh, the Bitmarters, Thomas Bitmarter, I'm going to give you a call to see if you can help me debug the problems with my uh, my Impulse RC Helix. But Tim McDonald, who had been a guest at, towards the end of last year, he, he helped me a lot. So he was an awesome guy. I got on the sim, got on the sim with Tim and my mate Brad Worm, who I'm hoping to have on the podcast shortly. Uh, maybe even next week. I'm trying to line him up. Uh, we'll get him on the podcast, have a chat a bit about freestyle aerobatics and things like that. So a lot was happening, and I hope you had a great time. And to cap it all off, uh, this latest weekend, I was at my local club down at Pakenham, and uh, I had a bit of a it was impromptu fun fly, really. Um, hobby Creations, one of the local hobby stores here, put on a bit of a, a barbecue sausage sizzle for the... Uh, for the people down at Pakenham, but they also, I think, invited some of their customers that turned up. And so it literally became a fun fly and there's some awesome flying, some great jets, uh, um, you know, all sorts of different things. So it was, it's really, really good to see down here in Australia, we're in control of COVID, we're able to go flying, events are coming back. So really, if anybody's complaining down in the land down under, please stop because there's a lot of countries out there that are doing it tough. Uh, with COVID and with plenty of restrictions that are preventing them from flying. So I'm really appreciative of our situation here in Australia. No other country I'd rather be in at the moment. But I, I look, I miss going to China for the, 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 the CTS competition, the China Top Show, but maybe this year, maybe next year. It will happen when it happens. But in between now and then, we'll just keep on flying and doing our thing. <laughs> Now it's guest time, and as I mentioned earlier, international flavour to kick off the 2021 season of the Flat Out RC podcast. And I reached out to a guy, actually, he reached out to me first. His name is Tom Laird. He's all the way from Scotland. And he sent me a message saying, hey, I, um, I gave all your the Flat Out RC a shout out in a local newsletter. I think I don't know if it was the local flying club or the local flying association's newsletter saying, you know, here's some interesting stuff, which I really appreciate. And I thought, I love talking to people overseas. And I, I sent out an invitation to him and said, look, Tom, do you want to come on the podcast and have a chat? And Because I'd love to find out more about your flying and also the flying scene in Scotland. Because I, I just love seeing the differences and what other countries are doing in, in various regards. So anyway, Tom joined me. Tom, all the way from Scotland, he... He's a long-time aero modeler. Uh, he, he's into aerobatics. I'd say he's an aerobatics guy. He's actually ex- has the same kind of passions in the hobby as myself, even though I appreciate all forms of aero modeling. You know, I love aerobatics and I love gliders and things like that, and that's what Tom sort of focuses on. But he's also very big in helping out at his local club in training people. And stay tuned to hear some interesting thoughts and approach of how – 
know, Tom is going about training and some of the recommendations he has got because really, really interesting guy with some really um, sort of not different opinions, but some some insightful opinions about how to train people. But and then of course he, we cover a lot of ground around the Scottish flying scene, which is interesting to hear as well. So please stay tuned over to my chat with Tom Laird all the way from Scotland. Well, we're back in 2021 with the Flat Out RC podcast, and I have a great guest to kick off the year. Uh, joining me on the line all the way from Scotland is Tom Laird. Tom, thanks for joining me. No problem. Great to be here. Great to help try and help you. Well, Tom, you sent me a message on Facebook and told me that you had given Flat Out RC a shout out in the local uh, association, Model, Model Flying Association uh, newsletter, and I greatly appreciate that. And so the first thing that came to mind is, i got to get Tom onto the podcast because uh, you're in Scotland and the Scottish accent is one of my favourite accents of all time. So just listening to you talk is a pleasure for me. But I really would love to, you know, talk to you later about the the, the flying scene in Scotland and what it's like and uh, no better person than yourself to join me. Now, Tom, how did you get started in the hobby? Oh, that was, um, I think like, like most people, you start off with the airfix kits. You know, you build them, you fly them around your room, and you you gradually, I think, you you get immersed into the aviation um, environment. Uh, so when I when I got started, it it was down to the local hobby shop, buy a model, uh, go build it. You know, this, this is pre-internet, so there, there's no help, you know, it's, it's a help to those with common sense. Don't stick your fingers together, don't cut them off the scalpel. Try and build something, phone some, try and find somebody somewhere who could fly it for you. Uh, hope it goes all right. Um, find, try and find a club, get someone who will teach you how to fly. and. Just gradually, you know, um, get to a point. This is before buddy boxes even were just coming out. What, what year so are we was, talking, Tom? What, 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 what? Oh, this would be 35 years. This would be 30 years ago. I was, well, I was 25 when I started. No, I was probably 25 when I started. So that was 40 years ago. Right. Um, Challenger, Fdaba Challenger. And I'm not even sure if I had a buddy box socket on it. Um, I think that was the upgrade. So it was the, someone would take off, get it up to 5,000 feet, give you the transmitter, because uh, he knew that if he started to go towards the ground, he had thing to grab it out of your hands. And it was just a total, oh, it was just terrible. Compa- you know, compared to nowadays, where you can go and, with all your simulators and just go and learn in, in your bedroom, you know, it's just completely different. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's I, 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 you don't know my background, but I, I was interested in the hobby from a, from a young age when I was in the 80s. And in the 80s, I remember reading magazines. I still love magazines and reading magazines from anywhere in the world. And you'd read these magazines and you'd hear 
see all the radios that were there. And, and, and the thing that got me is how expensive everything was. And fast forward to nowadays, you know, there's a lot of people that are pretty down on the hobby, but I think it's one of the best eras to actually get involved because it is more accessible and it is easier to get started, like you said, with with the simulator. So it's hard for me. I learned on a simulator when I you know, took it up you know, later in life and had no problem in the learning phase. I could fly from the first flight. But uh, yeah, back in those days trying to think. And what about the reliability? Did you have reliability issues back then? Um, I think the transmitters were, were okay. I don't really remember um, you know, any, any crashes due to poor equipment. It was all pretty good. Good stuff, but you you were flying a, a, a basic high wing trainer. You weren't going too far away. You weren't doing anything too dramatic. So, uh, you know, the, the equipment was all fit for purpose. There was no real problems there. And what plane? What was the first plane that you bought? Well, the, the first plane was a totally unsuitable um, high wing parasol type uh, model, and it was just complete. It was just it was just the wrong thing, completely the wrong thing. But then I got um, somebody gave me a, it was like a mascot, um, and it had a virtual front end, like it wasn't there. So I had to build the front end and the firewall. You know, this had obviously been in a crash, but that was a good introduction to you know basic building techniques. And at that time, the time it took to build it gave you time to save up for the servos and for the engine and all the rest of it. So uh, then I moved on to a mascot, and that was, a, you know, a, a, oh, I think it was maybe a 60-inch high-wing trainer, flew, flew on a, maybe an OS-40, something like that. And that was the one I, I had that for, you know, a couple of years till I, you know, got through your solo test. And so you, you and then you move on. Yeah, <laughs> and so it, it's funny that next step that people make in the hobby from the trainer. So I I went down the trainer route as well, and but I always knew that once I got my my what we call in Australia my, uh, bronze wings or silver wings, I knew that at that point I was going to I wanted an aerobatic plane after that because I wanted something that was a bit more agile than than the trainer. What was what was the the model that you went to after the trainer? I, I I had a, a couple of small low wing uh, type models, but I was I was at an open day. I refer to them as fly-ins over here. And there was one guy. There was one plane in the sky, and it was just so graceful. It was just you know night and day compared to the Ash and Bash it guys, and. I watched this guy land, and, I, and I, I was gobsmacked when the guy walked out. This this was a glider pilot, you know, and this was the first time I maybe realized that people were multi-skilled. <laughs> and it was an Excelsior, a Dave Smith Excelsior. So I thought, right, I need to get one of them. Um, so it was back home, fried the wife with a wine and flowers and oh I like to have one of these there. So built one, I think it had an MVVS ninety two stroke in the front. So that was a hefty piece of piece of kit. And I think that was 
my first real that was my that was the beginning of my introduction to power you know awesome power uh, that uh, that she also lasted a reasonable amount of time um, and that was replaced by a flare swallow so this was me starting to get more into the F3A side of stuff and that had a YS120 in it and that was just well that was just total power that was a, a fantastic combination yeah I've seen but, one I've seen one fly a pattern or like one of the classic what they call the classic pattern planes with a YS in yeah. it and the pilot landed very good pilot who flew for Australia through that era in in pattern and, and I said to him, that is one of the fastest prop planes I've ever seen fly. And he said, I was at half throttle. This thing went vertical <laughs> like nothing on earth. And he, I said, that is just unbelievable. This is beautiful. That, that, that was definitely one of the, I mean, attractive. Well, it, it would go up, you know, definitely. Yeah. Unlimited vertical. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is I, I noted through just flicking through your Facebook page is that you ended up, it appears that you're you're a bit of an aerobatics fan. Was that something that was there from the start that you 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 sort of went down that route? And you mentioned an F three A style plane. Was it something that you really fell in love with early on? I I think so. Um, as a uh, as a day job, I was a draftsman, so you had that. Um, Maybe that mindset where you like things to be neat and symmetrical and you know fitted all fitted together quite well. But I think it was the the gracefulness of the, the flying that I saw, and plus I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be good at what I do, you know. Uh, so I think that was a a vehicle for improving your flying. Yeah, oh, I agree because. As I mentioned to you earlier, Tom, off air, that uh, I think that we've lived parallel lives in the hobby. That uh, a lot of the models that you've got, uh, you know, I've replicated in a kind of way over here in Australia. So, and and for me, I I love aerobatics because that that um, that attainment of skill aspect where you're constantly learning. You you never get bored when you're flying aerobatics because there's always something to perfect, even a basic role. You know, I don't know whether yes. I'm ever going to perfect the basic role, you know, that I want that inverted phase of that role to be directly in front of me every single time and time it perfectly. And that's that challenge of aerobatics that really draws me draws me to that. Did you did you dabble in scale at all or any other any other aspects of the hobby? I don't think I really I, I had a couple of electric gliders at the time and I I had a, I did some slope, slope soaring, some thermals. Obviously, in Scotland, we we do have some decent um, hills around here where where we've got some you know, world championship class hills um, about thirty miles away. But um, I did some thermal stuff, um, did some slope, but kept coming back to the to the power. Yeah. Uh, well, look, you talked a bit about the slopes. Now, let's let's just talk a bit about Scotland because I really want to get into it with you because it's something that here in Australia, and I, I dare say a lot of locations around the world because we do get listeners from 
from all around the world that they're not thinking as uh, you know about the flying scene in Scotland very often we hear what's happening over in you know sort of the 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 you know the England side of things and um, a few events that are happening there the US dominates a lot Europe uh, you know out of Germany Austria places like that we get a lot now you did show me we have got our cameras on and you did show me the the view out of the window when I told you that it's we're going through a bit of a hot streak here down here in Melbourne Australia and you pointed the camera out the window and uh, what was on the ground Tom so we last night uh, so positional wise I'm near Edinburgh in Scotland so we're we're fairly close we're fairly low level we had one inch of snow last night the ski slopes had about a foot of snow 12 inches 300 millimeters of snow um, and just about 100 miles south of where I am was the main the main storm and those people uh, some of those people are being evacuated from their houses oh really because rivers are, are bursting their banks you know so this is a real challenge at the moment obviously you know this is bad at the worst of times but we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic so people we need to get their house but they don't want to get their house because they're going to burden someone else so it is a bit of a, an issue at the moment um, in Scotland we're, we're in a we're technically in a lockdown at the moment um, and that will last that's just been extended to the middle of February and I suspect the end of February but the vaccinations have started so you know we need to give that time to, to kick in and start to see the, the numbers go down um, it, it's still it's still pretty scary the, uh, at the moment. It's not, not that fun. Tom, you'd love to be in Australia at the moment because we have uh, very few cases nationally now. Um, we had a, a yeah. mini outbreak, and when we talk about a mini outbreak, eight people may have, may have contracted COVID, but we are in a very good position. But where I live, we did have some, severe, some pretty severe lockdowns through 2020, um, which meant no flying. What's the current flying yeah. situation in Scotland with COVID? How has how, how's, how's it been? Um, in 2020, we had no competitions at all. Uh, we normally start uh, at the end of March, and that really coincided with the start of it. So there was no, no competitions. Um, half, the, half the year was locked down, so you couldn't go flying anyway. We we came up with a framework agreement with the government which allowed competitions to take place in a controlled environment in a controlled manner so you had to um, have all your sanitizers you have to have your track and trace your risk assessment um, but that came in really at the end of the season but most of the clubs very quickly imposed a no visitors rule so even although we technically could run the competitions, we we couldn't get onto the club sites to run them. So that that was you know last year was was a wipeout. And this year, to be honest, at the moment we're sitting here thinking, should we even bother with P twenty one? You know, should we just go straight to P twenty three for for next year? Because 
I think it'll be June or July before we can run any comps. Yeah, and I again, think. that will be down to the clubs. Yeah, I think there will be a delay. Well, you know, I think in Australia, I think we're in a position where events are running now. We didn't. We were the yeah. same throughout 2020 that every event was pretty much cancelled. But we're, we're with our low numbers and with our restriction level, which is pretty good, where there's not much that we can't do at the moment. We're still going yeah. to socially distance and all that kind of thing. But yeah. you know, there was a there was an F3A comp uh, last weekend um, that was held locally. So things are, are coming back. Now, let's talk about then in a normal year in Scotland, what does the flying what does the flying scene look like? So starting with you know the club scene, are there are there many clubs in Scotland? Right. So to give you a little bit of a comparison, Scotland is about the same size as Tasmania and South Carolina. Uh, Tasmania has half a million people and Scotland has five and a half. But South Carolina is about the same, five, five and a bit. Um, Tasmania, from what I saw on one of the websites, has about about a dozen clubs, maybe 10. Yeah. And Scotland has about 50. So in a normal year, half those clubs will have an open day. Um, there'll be eight F3 competitions, half a dozen scale comps, uh, nine or ten thermal comps. There will be uh, the major helicopter um, national championships. The free flight guys, they'll fly once a month, so another seven or eight free flight events. Um, so it's, it's, you know, in, in the six months where we normally fly, there's probably, you know, 25 to 30, 50 events going on. So, you know, there, there's certainly no lack of things to do. The yeah. water plane guys, they'll have seven or eight uh, water events. So there's always lots to do. When, between March and October, I, I'm hardly ever at my own club at the weekend. Really? I'm either at a fly-in or a competition. Are, are events popular to attend? Yeah, they, 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 um, you maybe get oh, maybe 20, 20 people at each event, maybe. Yeah, okay. So with so many, we've, we've actually got a calendar on the website to, to try and get the clubs to not double up on a Saturday, you know. It, it was ridiculous a couple of years ago. You had maybe four events on a Saturday. Now, nobody wins. You know, then the next weekend would be free. So you think, well, just move one of them. Before, move a week. Yeah, but, do you know yeah. what's, what's really interesting, though, is that I love events. I love going to events, and it's a big part of the hobby for me, too. So just even just visit an event, even if I don't have a plane. And um, But in Australia, a lot of clubs are reluctant to run events. Okay, we've got mm-hmm. we've got very large distances to travel in Victoria, so yes. we might drive for three hours to get to an event easily. Uh, um, but that it sounds like uh, you know a lot of the clubs really like hosting events at their fields. Yeah, I think we the, the I think most most clubs are, are 
because of the social side, as you say, you, you might people might die without playing. It's it's a great chance to meet up with people. Um, so yeah, you, it's not every. It's, the, the, some clubs will give their site over for the competitions. Some sites, some clubs will give them over for the training and test, the training and testing weekend. So we need four of them. It, you know, other clubs will have the fly-ins. So it, it, it's a very, it is a very energetic scene. You know, there's always somewhere to go. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And and if 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 Scotland's the size of Tasmania, for, for we Australians. We could drive from one end of Tasmania in no time. We just think, oh, let's just get in the car and go. Uh, so that yeah. means that to us in Australia, the, all every single event is accessible to us. You know, we have some great events in in Australia, but I can travel fifteen hours to get to it. You know, yeah, by car. So you just don't go because it's just on the other end of the other end of the country. We most of our sites are probably, I would say, quick. 20 to 30 minutes for most people. 40 minutes for me is uh, is where I would start to be thinking twice. Uh, although one club is two and a half hours away, but there's a reason why I go up there. Um, if, I, if I want to go to any of the IMAC competitions, the nearest IMAC comp for me is three hours uh, at the north, at the south of Scotland. Um, and then it's four and a half hours down into England if, if it's a, the nearest IMAC. So that you get used to travelling that sort of distance. If and you you know you go on the, the Friday and you, you fly Saturday and Sunday, you come back up on the Sunday evening. Um, but certainly you could travel eight hours to to some of the sites. Yeah, and what sort of age groups are we would you categorize a lot of the um a lot of the hobbyists um we know that here in australia one of the biggest pushes that our local flying association has is to try to encourage younger people into the hobby and i'd say that the average age and someone told me a number but i can't remember but just i've never done an official survey but i'd say that the average age of an aero modeler in australia would be around 58 to 65 on average what what do you think it'd be in Scotland? I think um, I think that is probably about where we would place it as well. Um, it, I, you can see why. You're, you're generally, people will, if they're coming into the hobby, they're going to come in maybe when they're about forty, forty-five. Maybe kids have gone to university, have left school. Um, if they're coming in younger, then they might be bringing their son with them. Um, existing modelers will bring you know, younger people in. Their sons or daughters will come in with them. But we do have, a, we've been running a program here for the last 20 years. A couple of guys uh, started off uh, a program with the Air Training Corps, and that married up. A squadron with a club. So in the winter, the the club would go along. They would teach them how to build the model, and then, in the better weather, and they use that term loosely in Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, the, the kids would come along and they would learn to fly it. 
and then laterally they would they would have the simulators in in the in the, in the squadron huts. So that that's been one program that's been running um, for quite a while. So we're seeing a bit of success there. Who's running but those? Who's running those programs? Well, the it's it it's two. It's a group of people who, when it started, they were on the organising council for the Scottish Aeromodellers Association, and they could see the need for doing this. So they started off this program, and um, they got some funding and they've had some support. So they 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 just chip away at it. You know, they keep they will take the kids up to the local air force. Um, we have a gliding school quite close by, which they can use. They've got premises there, workshops, and that's been spread through different squadrons throughout Scotland. So they'll have they'll have camping weekends where they can go and fly, and have training weekends. So that's been, I would say, that has been quite quite a good piece of work that those guys have done. Do you you know? In Australia, we always keep on saying that more needs to be done. Do you have that same feeling in Scotland that they that more needs to be done to encourage new participants into the hobby, or do you think it's it's going along by itself quite well? I think, uh, like most people, I think we we do need um, a fairly high level strategy to to bring people in. Uh, your podcast maybe. A month ago, with the, the four kids, was quite interesting. Uh, you could see them how they, you could see their viewpoint, um, how they got involved. But it's like everything else. Um, if you leave everything to the, the three or four people, they get spread too thin and nothing gets done properly. Um, recruitment is a great way for uh, distributed help. So you have a core strategy. You find out what works, and then you you have local people who will do little bits, you know. And you know, if it's, if it's a come and try days, where are we going to advert? All right, someone has to go and put the adverts out. Someone has to make sure they're looking after the kids. Blah 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 blah. Um, so that is a great way where most people could lend a hand uh, and do something. Um, you know, you you can have. Even displays in the local community centre on a Saturday morning, you know, um, would gain exposure. Get the leaflets out, get them to come up to the site, get them the website. You know, there's lots that can be done to, to attract people. But it's definitely a, it's a tough it's a tough road to get. You know, it is. It's a hard road. Uh, definitely, it's a hard road. But I 100 agree with you when you said that. You need to have that group of people who can't rely on two or three people because they'll just burn out trying to under the load and the pressure. And um, one of the challenges I think we have here in Australia, which is not a it's not great to see, is that there is this a reluctance for people to get involved in in recruiting and supporting um, new new flyers. Uh, it's almost like um, people are happy with their lot and aren't concerned about what might happen and 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 i hate to say this but 
the the older generation are probably the ones that are more reluctant to want to, the situation to change at all. And and I look at it and think that I'm 47 years of age, and I hope that in my retirement, when I'm 70 plus, that I'll still have a flying field to go to, and I can still enjoy the hobby. But I know that that will only be viable if we can keep the numbers at a sufficient level to support the activity, and uh, and that's gonna it's gonna take a long time. And as we know, that the whole world is is faced with the same challenge and trying to encourage a younger generation into the hobby. But there's something that, like you mentioned earlier, that you see people that are you know the the kids are off their hands as we say you know moved on they're going to university or got jobs so you have a bit more free time that i've always said that it's easier to go and get a 55 year old to join the hobby than it is a 15 year old uh kid and so maybe that's another avenue that we need to focus on is is encouraging you know the middle-aged uh men and women to want to get involved in the hobby it just seems a bit easier because they're probably you know a lot of people are looking for something else to do yeah, there's certainly, I know that we've got some ideas on, on that front. Um, it, it's certainly, those are people with the money, right? So uh, they've got some liquid cash, they've probably got a bit more time. So I, I think there's, a, I think there, you, you can definitely split into the three groups. So you can have your sub-20s, um, you can go for your, 40, 45 year olds. And then you have the people who are approaching retirement. So we'll get up to 60, 65. Um, <clears throat> they, are, they are going to be looking for something to do. So there's three different age groups, each with a different, um, each of them will require a different recruitment strategy, right? Uh, with the kids, it, it's got to be fun. It's got to be fun from the, from the, from the get go. So it has to be some some piece of cheap foamy thing that they can fly around the sky on a buddy box and if it piles in, it's not going to get damaged. You take it, you throw it up again, and you have a good time. And then you progress them on to more demanding stuff. They're all well, we know they're all PlayStation friendly. So we bung them in front of a simulator. The last twelve year old we had landed on his second flight. His first flight went straight up the runway, right where he should have been. Second flight landed, third flight took off. Same with his dad, because they'd spent the last couple of months on the simulator. And that 12-year-old, he will be doing tricks that I can't do within, within the year. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting. My, my son is 13. And he sees me on the simulator. And when he sees the simulator, he loves computer games, of course, but he sees me on the simulator and he rushes over. So if we're watching television and an ad comes on, he says, it's my turn when the ad's on. And so he grabs the transmitter and he's not worried about landing the plane. He's more preoccupied in trying to hover the plane. So he will learn how to hover yes. a plane before he lands yep. a plane. And I'm, I'm this you know, adult saying to him, Charlie, you've got to learn how to just fly a basic circuit take off and land oh, no, back no. down. The, oh, he, goes, he literally says to me, why do I need to know how to do that? <laughs> said, yeah. well, how are you, you going to get the plane off the ground? How are you going to get back on the ground once you've done everything else? So, um, and, and the simulator, I, like I've told this story numerous times, how I, I practiced on a simulator for many years um, before I even got into, I was 
learned how to fly helicopters on a simulator. Then I moved into the fixed wing thing. And so my first flight with a real radio controlled plane, I took off and landed. I landed twice, actually. I landed and the guy said, oh, we'll take off again. And I took off and I flew a few more circuits and landed. And that was all on the back of a simulator. And I'm a big proponent for simulator. And I know you are because you sent me a message said that you're uh, you're on the simulator trying to practice a little uh, Chris Brislin, one of yeah. our, our great uh, great pilots. Uh, you're, try, you're trying to replicate some of his manoeuvres. So well done, Tom. Great to see that you're on the simulator. Well, actually, what are your thoughts on the simulator? You know, you're you're an older gentleman. What do you use a simulator for? Well, for the lockdown, I've been trying to do my own personal lockdown challenges. So one every couple of weeks. A new move every one new move every two weeks. Now it's great for the hot shots, they can all do it. But at one point they couldn't. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I've I've been doing the prop hanging stuff, I've been doing the forty five degree knife edges, um the knife edge snaps. So it's a really interesting way to, to trash your model. Yeah. And then John Breslin the Chris Breslin uh takeoff sequence. Uh, so I've, I've just about got it. I've almost nailed it. Uh, as a as a club, we will run uh, simulator mornings either at the uh, either at the clubhouse, which is a shipping container, yeah, or we'll hire um, a room in the local community centre and either do that maybe one evening uh, during the week. But the, I had one guy; he just could not do. The two rolls. He couldn't. He just couldn't do it. So we slowed the simulator down to a quarter speed, so his brain could actually work faster than the sim. Ten minutes later, he could do the two rolls, and then you just gradually turn the speed up, and he gets more used to it, and more used to it, and there you go. So they're they're not toys. Um, they've got their, their tools to to do a job. For every model you have on the simulator, you need a setup on your transmitter. So you're not going to fly a, a three-meter iMac model on the same setting as your turbine or your S3 model. So there has to be three different and one for, and one for the trainer. So you need four or five different setups. And if you've got two simulators, if you've got Phoenix and Real Flight, then you, you double that number. So uh, I, I can't see past them. I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I don't, you know, if somebody wants to learn to fly, I want to see them do it on the simulator before I'll take them out and do it for real. You know, okay, we take them out and give them a test flight on the sticks, on the buddy box, but that's it. Um, let's go learn on the sim. You know, I, I don't have time to spend a year in the cold and the wind and the the horrible weather teaching you i've got enough to do myself well do you know what's funny uh, that i 100 percent agree with you like totally totally agree it, my brother also uh used to fly model planes and he learned on the simulator and i watched um the person that was teaching him versus the guy that i had that was teaching me now the guy that was teaching me wasn't an official instructor because i fly mode two and most people in Australia like yep. flying mode one. And they said, oh, that guy fly, flies mode two. He can he can look after you. Anyway, he's a good mate now. I had a chat with him the other day, actually. And uh, and he just handed the transmitter over to me and said, we'll see how you go, right? 
my brother, on the other hand, he flies mode one and he had the proper instructor. So the instructor takes the plane off and gets it up to about 300 feet in the air and says, okay, Michael, I want you to just grab that aileron stick and I just want you to wiggle it and see, but don't touch anything else. And this went on flight <laughs> after flight and my brother's sitting there and my brother, by the way, could already fly because he'd spent a lot of time on the simulator. And so yeah. I was sitting there and I kept saying, I'm telling that you know how to fly the damn thing. But there was this reluctance amongst a lot of instructors. They didn't believe you that you could fly um, the model okay to a certain level because you'd done the simulator practice. And even when I yeah. got my sort of license, as they call it, uh, I they were concerned that I did it too quickly, that I got to that point too quickly. Ah. And yeah, that that's was an interesting. Yeah. That is an interesting point because if you go back to a young 12-year-old, I reckon he could have flown, again, we have this bronze, silver, and gold um, standards over here. Bronze is to fly solo and go to, and that, that allows you to go and visit other clubs. Silver is for public air shows, and gold is a personal, you know, personal achievement. Now, I reckon this 12-year-old could have flown the bronze schedule on his second visit, right? He could probably have answered the questions. But my concern was he didn't have the, the miles, the mileage. He hadn't been around in the environment long enough to see what not to do and what silly things can happen or he didn't have he didn't have the awareness of the hobby to allow him to go and fly on his own or go to another club so as things just weather wise and all the rest of it it padded out about three months before he passed his test um but i think it was certainly quite capable on on day two to, to fly the schedule, but it was just the awareness that made me a little bit concerned. So I, I, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an examiner, so uh, that was what, you know, I, I felt there was a safety aspect there, that he um, wasn't, mature is not the right word, uh, but he just he hadn't had enough, he hadn't been around other people long enough, in the pits nearly, I hadn't seen other people. Yeah, something that I can appreciate because I've experienced even older people that have got into the hobby and um, yeah, they they got their their wings and all that kind of thing. But there were things that they did that it was just out of a lack of experience and observation mm-hmm. as to yeah. what was going on. Yeah. Um, and and some people are like that. I, I'm I'm the opposite kind of person that. I will investigate something that I want to get involved in for a long time before I actually go and do it. So I, I recently bought a, a, a motorbike. I have mm-hmm. the remnants of a dislocated shoulder <laughs> at the moment as a result of buying the motorbike. But that motorbike purchase took me two and a half years of ob- observation. Yeah. And when I when I got into, say, the hobby, I would go to a flying club and I'd watch and just observe and take mental notes. And But some people don't do that. They just get the plane, like, oh, we just go and fly a plane now. Oh, okay, that's all fine. But it's not like that. It's understanding how a club environment works, how we manage the airspace, how we, you know, the safety regulations that we need to abide by. And uh, I think that, yes, it does come with, with some time. 
I'm not saying three years. I'm saying maybe three, four months of regular visits to get up to speed, assuming you've got good mentors as well. And that's what I think the clubs need is is good mentors that can help that process along, whether it's a young person or an older person that just got into the hobby. Well, I, I had a look at this. The whole, I ran a training course um, last September, October, when the F3E season finished. And I, I came up with this idea that you, the instructors, there should be different levels of instructors. So you should have maybe one of one guy who does the ground school. So he takes them around the site, explains what all the bits are, where everything goes, what you can do, what you can't do. You'll take them through the safety manual and you'll ask them the questions. You have a second level instructor. So your primary instructor, he's the guy who'll do the maiden flights. Does the maiden flight, gets the model trimmed out, blah, blah, blah. Right. He can then pass him on to a second level instructor who uh, will just fly the schedule. By that time, the pupil can already take off and land. Okay, so your primary instructor does the maiden flights, takeoffs, landings, and a lot of the air experience. Then you hand it over to the, the guy who's just going to do the air experience. And, you know, and that spreads the road because there's a lot of people who don't want to do a maiden flight, it's scary. They're about to crash somebody's model. Yeah. But there's other people with it. So I, for instance, I I want to teach people at silver and gold level. I don't mind teaching bronze, but I don't want to teach bronze. There's other people with a lower skill level who could teach bronze and let me focus on the higher level. So it you know, structure structuring your instructors would be a good start. It takes the pressure off them. Tom, you know you're a very smart man. You've come out. You've come out with so many great things. Like I've never thought of that with the instructors, but it makes total sense. Like for example, say there is somebody that's trying to progress through their wings and wants to get to gold wings. We've got gold wing standard here, and the gold wing sequence yeah. is primarily an aerobatics, a very basic aerobatic sequence, right? That if there's somebody that, yeah, so say somebody's trying to go for that gold wings and maybe wants to go further with aerobatics, then an instructor that is experienced with aerobatics that can really teach that pilot well is going to make a lot more sense than someone that just, you know, you've seen it, Tom, you know, there's people that can slap together an aerobatic routine, but it's a bit messy and they don't manage the throttle and it's not nice to watch, but it's, look, they did a loop, but it was sort of round. Yeah. But you know, if you had an instructor that said, okay, this is how you fly a loop properly. This is how you fly a roll properly. This is what the rudder does. We have a problem. A lot yes. of people don't know what the rudder does. Right? And I, yeah. I've got to a point where I can't live, I can't fly models without a rudder. I love the rudder so much. But but uh, that makes so much sense. I, hope, I do know that some of our, um, you know, association committee members and things like that, they listen to this podcast. So, Tom, you, you're providing a lot of food for thought down here in Australia. You'll be, you'll be improving the, the model flying scene so we can beat the Scottish pilots the next F3A world champs. <laughs> well, we've got one We've got one guy. He doesn't really want to teach the, the flying side, but he's quite happy to, you know, you might find somebody who's quite happy to sit in the container with a cup of coffee and chat to somebody, take them through all the safety aspects, you know, it, it spread the load. 
and it, 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 it keeps it keeps them involved you know all that experience is not going to waste yeah and that's the thing I've, I've always and this is one of the things i love about this podcast is that i can capture people's experiences and share them to the world and have them on record yeah and it's something that i'm trying to do a bit more of in 2021 is letting the cat out of the bag that i want to really talk to uh, even some of the people that i've already interviewed in the past and just start honing in on some of their expertise and it was actually one guy gave me a thing he said why don't you you know we do a, a session on painting a model plane or finishing a model plane and and utilizing because we've got some great scale modelers here in australia that uh, and it's amazing what they can do with their hands and uh passing that down and having it on record could be uh, uh something that i'd love to be able to do so you're going you're going on the record tom well at our last uh, club annual general meeting a couple of the guys asked if we could do some building sessions they they said we'd be brought up on foamies we'd be brought up on ARTS but we don't really know how to fix them you know um, if they got damaged we would, we would probably help we'd help them out and fix it for them but they're asking you know it, and it, they were saying look we why do you use that why do you use cyano there and epoxy there mm. you know, can why don't i just use cyano in my firewall and we're we're shuddering in the corner for the thought of that yeah. but they, they, these are genuine questions they, they don't know yeah because they've not been through the pain of of putting your firewall in with cyano and having it been ripped out you know so we started a program of um, build nights where we, we could take them through the basics. We, we found a couple of kits. We thought they're easy enough for beginners, but they're still a challenge and they still have to ask questions. So it, it was quite a, a, an eye-opener for us because it's just something we had never thought of. We, we can do this because we've been brought up with it. But the new guys have not. And especially the modern models where it's you know, a lot of carbon, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, a lot of fresh air in there. So teaching the new guys, the building, the basics, even down to the which glue to use where, um, is, is quite, and which wood to use, and, and how which way round does the balsa go? Why, why is the green going that way instead of that way? So they, you've, you've got to teach them. So building things is a good way. If, if everybody, if you have a model, a recommended club model, everybody will build the same model. And they, so then you teach, it's the usual business stuff, teach the teacher. You show the first guy. He, you then talk to the second guy with the first guy and he'll say, oh yeah, but do that and don't do that because I glued, I glued that upside down. And gradually that knowledge will, will percolate through the club so we we, we hold in on one model that we want everyone to build as, as a first kit it makes a lot of sense because you know like you said a lot of people are coming into the hobby now through you know an arf or a um a foamy kind of plane and they don't have that that building experience and you know, there's a lot of people here in Australia, especially the, the the older building community that love building. That they say, "Oh, it's terrible nowadays. Nobody wants to build kits and all this kind of stuff." And it's well, 
we had no choice when we were younger. In in the eighties, I had to yeah. buy the kit with the glider kit, and I had to glue it together, and then I had to work out how to cover it, and you know, set up the radio gear and all that kind of stuff. And so you, you learnt something. It was a different experience to what it is now. And I suppose to to those people that want to see more building happening, well, you've got to get off your butt and help out and and actually go and lead that. And that idea of designating a model for the club to build that the members could build and you could you could make it into like a competition and a deadline date that everybody's working towards have a fun fly with the you know the 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 stick you know the classic stick kind of uh kind of model or something like that makes a lot of sense and and it gives people a lot of like you know when you finish a model that sense of pride when you just look at it sitting in the living room Yeah. I don't know, and I've talked about this a lot. And I say to my wife, "Have a look at that model," and she says, "What it looks like all the others?" I go, "No, it's not. <laughs> it's different. <laughs> Have a look at it. Isn't it great?" And I think that's something that uh, you know that immense sense of pride comes from building. You know? I think if you, I mean, you've gone through the magazine phase, and you, you've had it impacted by the internet. When I took over as editor, that was a big concern. What's Facebook going to do for the magazine? Well, we still produce. We'll, we'll learn to live happily. The magazine still goes out, or, you know. And it's the same with the the building. People are starting off on the phonies and the ARPS, but the local kit builder's probably got a, a two month delay before he can supply your next kit, because then they move on to the kits. You know, it's, and, and as you say, you've got it's just a challenge. You've got to help them. Yeah, so. and that's good. And it, it, I always say that um, the hobby looks different. You know, it takes on different guises. So, for example, uh, I don't fly very often because of just life commitments, whether it be work or family things or whatever. But when I go flying, I make the most of it and have a great time. But I think about it every single day. So I say that I'm an active aero modeler because my mind is thinking about it and I'll be thinking about a model and a friend will ring me up and say, oh, my wheel pants keep on cracking. What should I do? Or, you know, um, (laughs) what servos should I get for that plane? And my motor's not running properly. And I think that whether whether you're talking about it, whether you're actively flying a model, whether you're actively building it, it's all part of the hobby and it keeps you motivated. So... If I'm thinking about it every day, well, I'm still motivated to want to go out and fly and accessing Facebook, YouTube, a podcast, a magazine, going to an event, going to a you know a building session with a group of people, it's it's all playing that part and keeping people active in the hobby and motivated, which is what more could you ask for really? You know, we're all active in our in our hobby. Just on that, well, actually. Think- oh, sorry, go, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. I was thinking. I mean, the. I remember the. I remember getting, um, buying the, the Wildberry, Tucson, two thousand and four shootout. Oh. Uh, the video. The video set, and the the first one was the first disc was a film, and the, the, this was these guys landing and oh some mad 40 mile an hour crosswind. The second disc was, was all the schedules. And I think that is where, that's what got me hooked. Uh, I, I, that was a, a game changer when, when I saw that. And, and 
laterally, the whole YouTube thing is just totally amazing. So I watched uh, Wondersan fly a schedule, and I narrated it onto my phone in real time. Then I went up to the flying site with my MP3, stuck my headphones on, and I tried to fly the same schedule with the same timing. Can, can you imagine doing that? You know, there's a guy in a field halfway around the world, and you're trying to emulate him. It's totally, and the all the, the YouTube videos, all the 3D stuff you see, it just gives you ideas. You, you look at you. If you're just watching, on, you know, oh yeah, it's just another 3D flight. Yeah, but you're bored with that. But if you if you can pick bits out of that and say that was really good, how did he do that? You know, slow it down, watch it right. Well, I'm, I'll, I can do that. He's just done that and that, and he's joined them together. You know, and and that you know that's a, a great way to learn new new stuff. Just Go and, go and learn it, break it down into the bits, and get started. Well, you know, one of the best 3D pilots going around is Jay Stucia from the US, and, and I had him on the podcast, and, and I know him, and he did exactly that. He learned other people's sequences. He'd, he'd see them, you know, the videos of people flying at Tucson and whatever in different competitions, and he would yeah. go home and yeah. learn that. And the way that I, like, I, I love playing music. I've got a guitar sitting next to me. And what you do when you learn a musical instrument is you will learn other people's songs and you'll learn scales, you'll do exercises. And then at some point in time, you have this wealth of knowledge under your fingertips that then you can go and make something by yourself that you don't need to copy somebody else. And I think learning other people's sequences is a great way to do it. That's why I'm also a big fan of seeing people fly F3A and iMac. If, if, If you want to be a freestyle aerobatic guy, a 3D guy, going to fly um, uh, iMac and F3A at some part in in your life cycle makes so much sense, not only for the discipline of learning a sequence and learning those manoeuvres, but being precise and and getting that control in your fingertips that you can then translate into your freestyle. But um, again, that, that discipline of F3A or iMac where you go out and you practice that same thing over and over again to perfect it, is is another great way to just become a gun pilot, really. And that's what you're trying to do, isn't it, Tom? You're trying to be a gun pilot. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be that, but uh, it, it it keeps me going. You know, it's another reason. If, if I mean, before I go out, I've got a pretty good idea of what I'm going to get from that session. And if you can't. If the motivation is not there that day, then I don't go. Uh, I just think, oh God, I'm going. To, I've got all these batteries going to have to charge up. I'm going to get nothing out of the session. Um, the motivation is not there. Uh, I'm quite likely to just break the model. But if, if you're learning new stuff every week, that you've got. I mean, but I, I think I'm on lockdown project number eight now. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you know, my my poor old fifty cc is shuddering on its undercarriage. <laughs> yeah, I've I've briefed the wife. I said, "Don't expect uh, this to be here yeah. come Christmas." Yeah. So I've got I've got a stack of stuff to 
to go to go and do, you know, once we can get flying again. Well, it's interesting. I once we got out of our lockdown phase and went back flying after many many months. The first flying session was fine. I just scooted around the sky, and it was just great to be back in the that you know the club environment and and flying a plane. Um, but then that week after, I I knew that I was starting to get bored towards the end of my session because. I wasn't uh-huh. I wasn't planned. I wasn't thinking about it. I was just flying around. And I get bored easily and I was starting to get bored of that. And yep. so that next week I'd been flying. I've got a little um, Sebart Mythos pattern plane, 50 size. And I, I really enjoyed flying it. So I thought, okay, I need to challenge myself. Otherwise, I'm going to get bored just, you know, practicing roles. So I went and learned the, like the sportsman sequence in, in, um, in pattern, right? So that... And I'd go on the simulator yep. to learn. I printed yep. it out. I, I scanned through it all, and I can do all the maneuvers, and that's fine. Everybody, a lot of people can do the maneuvers, but can you do them well? And can you do them in the right order? And make sure everything is nice and straight, and everything. And so, I went on the simulator to practice that sequence, so that next time I go, I've got a purpose to my yep. to my session. Which some people may say, "Oh, that's too planned for me." But no, that is how, that's what I enjoy. I enjoy going to the field and like you said, getting something out of it. Today I practiced this and I got better at it, you know, or I need more work at it or something like that. So there's definitely room for, in, in down in England, the, the guys have been running what they call the freestyle masters for the last, um, I think this might be fourth year. And the, the first day you, you fly three, Three flights, those are ranking flights, so you get scored on them. And the second day is a knockout. But the trick is, no two flights can be the same. So you can't go and practice. You, know, you can go and practice, you, you, you know, you, but you've got, you, know, you, you have to, um, I guess there's a certain degree of improvisation in there. And I think that's what I always, found interesting. How can you go and practice a freestyle routine? But there is a difference between freestyle and the impromptu uh, type flying. Now these guys are good. They're amazing. Amazing. But they're not iMac pilots and they're not iMac. It would be interesting. I know there's some of the iMac guys going to fly there. That's a different type of flying. Because on the IMAX freestyle, you can go and practice your schedule. Then for that one, I'm sure they do practice all the different schedules. Yeah. They're all very good, but there is a difference between freestyle and the impromptu stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, what's interesting is uh, here in Australia, that freestyle aerobatic scene is not very strong. Um, it's something that I, I tried to foster. I used to be the distributor for 3D Hobby Shop planes many years ago, and I used to run an aerobatic fun fly event and that was trying to create that community and and we were getting somewhere slowly and the IMAX scene is not too bad in Australia but what we find is that they don't there's not many of them that want to go and fly freestyle and especially like the four minute freestyle to music and over the part literally in the past week I've been helping out a young guy who wants to fly freestyle and mm-hmm. yeah what we've what we've worked out is that it's actually a fair bit of work and it involves multiple skills. So, for example, we spent the first discussion together selecting music, right? And yeah. putting yeah. together music for four minutes 
that worked together that allowed you to fly to it. Like we would listen to all these songs and go, nice song, but you can't fly to it. Um, the, yeah. the young guy selected this song. It was so depressing. I said, look, people are going to be stabbing themselves if they listen to this plane. You know, we've got to excite the judges. We can't have that. Anyway, so that was the first thing. And we were really happy. Once we got that four minutes and it was edited up nicely, we were really happy. Then yeah. the, I said to the young guy, okay, now go away and start thinking about what you would do. And he was started to struggle. So we had another conversation about um, what what that music, the pace of that music and what was the vision that comes to mind of what would a plane do to that music. So I broke it up into yeah. like um, big sky manoeuvres, I'd say to him. I'm seeing big rolling circle kind of manoeuvre at right in time with the beat kind of thing. And, and so we went through and what we did with each song is work out one signature move for, you know, that that big crescendo of the song where you have to be perfectly on time, you know, that 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 snap need to happen exactly the right time. And so then what we did is, so we created these signature manoeuvres for each song. And then I asked him to work out how to link them together. And he went yeah, away and then yeah. he came back and, and we were doing it online because he lives two and a half hours away from me. And he actually sent me a message today, said he went to the flying field because he's on school holidays and and he practised to the music and he, he, he worked out more. So, Moral of the story is that that freestyle aerobatics is it involves so many different things, especially when you're flying to music. And I think the complexity of it may put people off, but to me, my by far and away my favorite thing to see is four minute freestyles to music. It's to me, it's like dancing in the air if you do it well. Um, and I'd love to see more of it in Australia, but we we, we don't see a lot of it at all. We don't see too much in Scotland. Um, I think in the UK as a whole, there's maybe 20, 25 IMAC pilots. Uh, there's about six in Scotland um, and we're all fairly spread out. So we don't really get together very often. Um, but the music thing, you know, Western music is a beat of four or a beat of eight. Maybe a beat of three, um, if it's if it's triplets. Um, so you you can listen. I I I like being in the car when I'm ice driving because I can I can listen to music and I, I can try and as you say visualize what what what's the plane going to do. Or you you find a piece of music that's got a slow part, a fast part, and a slow part, and you think right, well for this bit I can do this and I can do that. And everybody's got a snap roll switch, right? Just do the snap rolls to the beat. Bang, two, three, four, bang, two, three, four, bang. And get used to doing that, to synchronizing something to the beat. And just, as you say, there's a nice easy move. Just groove around, procedure term, but come in inverted. Look, there you go. Add it into a loop. There you go. Three or four moves. There you go. There's a freestyle uh, schedule for you. Do you know what was interesting? Just on that point. So when I was working with this young guy, and he's actually going to be on the uh, on the podcast. I've told, I've worded him up. He's a young guy. We were trying to work out the starting sequence, and and my my good friend Ido Segev taught me this. He said when you do a four minute freestyle, always try to take off on the ground. You know the the the, the, the the performance starts on the ground and ends on the ground. So I said, okay. 
I said to him, you've got to impress the judges straight out of the box. And we were really struggling. He was struggling what to do in that first sort of sequence that led up to the signature manoeuvre. You know how I said there was a signature manoeuvre. Now, the first song only went for about 45 seconds, no more than 50 seconds. I ended up saying to him, try this. Very, very simple manoeuvre. Take off, roll inverted, pull up and loop back down the strip, go into knife edge, snap it into knife edge on on the beat. And then as it comes straight past you, a snap roll in knife edge right in front, right? And then yep. fly away and then loop her back around like a procedure turn back. That was it for the first song. It was nothing. Yep. I said to him, can you do that? He goes, oh, I could do that with my eyes closed. I said, that's what we want. That is, it's only yep. a series of, you know, five or so maneuvers of, and some of them are really basic for him uh, that actually got almost the first minute out of the way. And I think he was amazed because he was thinking, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And I said, no, no, you're not going to have time. Like, you're just not going to have time to... Because remember, because when you fly, yeah. this is the problem with flying on the simulator sometimes. Because with the simulator, I think sometimes we don't fly as wide as what we normally would or can, that we fly a lot yeah. closer. And um, he he said to me today, he sent me a message, he said, I've got to work on my timing. I said, that's the biggest thing. You've got to get that timing. And, and you've got to, like, that signature manoeuvre for each song that is what you're timing for. Get that right, yeah, and that's going to really impress the judges. But um, but yeah, that timing thing is. And I, I've been to China as a judge of some aerobatic events, and and it's one of the biggest things you look for is just are they on the beat? Are they flying to the music, or are they just the music's happening and they're just scooting around the sky? Well, yeah, no, yeah, it's not the same. I think you can tell. You can well, tell quite quickly. Now tell me, so. Are you competing yourself? Are you, you know, are you getting out and competing in F3A and IMAC events regularly, or uh, as much as you can in a normal year? Well, we, well, I'm 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 kind of lucky that I'm retired now, so I, I can go. Our competitions are one one a month from March through to October, Saturdays. Um, you might have to travel on a Friday to if it's. A couple of hours away. Um, so yes, uh, seven or eight uh, F3As. Tried to do a couple of IMAC competitions. Um, so and the rest of the time is, as I say, fly-ins, uh, open days, just and just learning. I, I tend to fly Saturday, Sunday, and a Wednesday, so I can I go out one day during the week. Um, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. I wish yeah. I was in your shoes. <laughs> now, tell me, I what, move yeah. <laughs> now, tell me. Uh, let's talk a bit about your current hangar. What what models are you currently flying? Well, it's the the fifty cc is the Andrew Jeski ARS three hundred. Yeah, beautiful. <clears throat> so that was that, that used to be a, a pilot extra. Um, I sold that and I bought the. The RS just just for a change basically. That's got a ZDZ56 in it. My Amite model is the Hangar Nine, uh, three extra 300X. I think it's 108 inch. So it's a ZDZ11 with a couple of PS power canisters in it. The 50's got a giant B can. The rest of the um, I've just moved from a Mythos Pro to a Zonda. So that's I haven't really had we know we know F three comps last year. Uh, it's not really flown too much. 
So that's the that's the main aerobatic model, uh, the main F3 model, and then a, a, for for DLG is a blaster and explorer for F5G. So that and I've got a little hobby thing, 40-inch foamy. Um, that uh, that'll be put to good use learning all these new moves I've learned. Yeah, yeah that's true. Do you have any <laughs> Do you have any scalp lines? Um, I have an 81 inch Dave Platt Mustang that is um, awaiting. It's not built yet, so I've got the parts. I just need to build it. I'll be hanging off. I need to go and buy retracts. I'd like to have the retracts before I build the wing. But that took me about the best part, maybe three years before I actually went and bought it. Mm. Do all the research, look at all the build threads, you know. So um, I'm not in a hurry to, to get started on it. I think we'll probably start in the summer. Yeah. Um, so that's the current one. That's the current hanger. Well, speaking of summer, it's funny. Australia's a funny place because it's so diverse in its in its weather. Um, I'm down in the southeastern corner in Victoria, Melbourne, Australia, and our weather is we have four distinct seasons, and often we have those four seasons in one day. Um, yeah, we're currently at the height of summer. We've got a big heat wave coming through in the next week. But if you live up in the northern parts of Australia, you're in the heat all year round, and so flying is a you know a, a weekly proposition. Whereas down here, generally in winter, it gets a bit windy and cold. What does it look like in in Scotland? I know that you don't get the weather that we get, but what does a flying sort of year look like as far as um, seasons? It We'll start off maybe beginning of April. Um, it, it's generally <clears throat> oh, if, if if it's, I would say the average temperature is probably twenty, somewhere between twenty and twenty six degrees. You know, it, it's ne it's never, it's never really melting hot. Um, you know, we could have a Friday where it's beautiful blue sky, um, no wind. Saturday morning could be 50 foot cloud, the 30 mile an hour horizontal rain, and vice versa. You know, the, the, you know, the weather is like, what is what? Look out the window. <laughs> um, but we, 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 can, we can fly most, there's not many competitions. We, we tend to we tend to look a week ahead for a comp, so we can tell the club if we're definitely not coming. Um, but we'll make the final call tends to be a Thursday night, so Thursday evening. If all the weather forecasts are still saying it's going to be water mile an hour wind, torrential rain, we'll we'll just pull the plug because we, you know we've got people travelling a couple of hours and. It's, it's only fair to the club when you tell them they're not coming. But most time, most times we can we can get through, you know, maybe six out of the eight <coughs> competitions, and then you might be able to to um, get the use of a site to to have a you know an extra competition like one of the ones you've missed. But it's generally not too bad. 
And in winter, I'm assuming there's is there any indoor flying happening or it's just building time or stay indoors? No, there's a bit of indoor. Norm, in a normal year, um, a COVID-free year, there, there's maybe three or four different um, venues where they do indoor stuff. But most people, for, for the likes of myself, it's take the foamy um, without the undercarriage and go and have a, two or three flights, a cup of coffee, pop pie, <laughs> another flight. So you, you tend to just go and fly in the snow. You know, it's, it's or people will, you know, it's things like the, the they'll fit skis to their planes. So these tundras, um, the hobby can do, they'll, they'll fit skis to them and just go and have a, a blast of a time. Or the heli guys will be up, you know. That's true, they can find anything, can't they? <clears throat> it doesn't really stop them. No, now, Tom, there's a question that I ask everybody, and I've worded you up before we started but this question is coming and that is what has been your favorite model of all time i think i think the one that i keep going back to is uh, an angel shadow with a ys160 that for me was a, a game changer so i think i'd gone from the swallow i had a novolis and a synergy and then I got one of our friends was selling this angel shadow. Um, it was probably five or six years old at that time. It was a thousand pound, no, seventeen hundred Australian dollars. Came complete, hand over money, go fly. And that was, I think that's the one where you it really it made me look better than I was. Yeah, <laughs> but it was a total game changer. And I think that's where you really saw the, the 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 benefit of paying good money for for a good airframe. Um, that that was, that's that's the one I keep thinking back to. That uh, that was replaced by a second Angel Shadow, the, the first of the electric ones, uh, which only had the problem you had to fit the batteries from underneath. Um, <clears throat> and then when it when it was sold. Um, I think that was replaced by a contrast from Lithuania, which I had for a couple of years, and then the Mythos then is on that. Well, Tom, I'll tell you what, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, our, our discussion has covered a lot of different bases and a lot of bases that oh, I didn't, didn't plan on discussing with you, but uh, you've given us little snippets of gold, which I really appreciate, and uh, I know that everybody else that uh, is listening to the podcast would want to say thank you. So... A big thank you to you, Tom, and I hope everything's going well over in Scotland, that this COVID thing gets sorted pretty quickly and you can uh, get back to normal and keep up the good work and please stay in touch, Tom. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the for the opportunity. I think these podcasts, since I started listening to them, it's interesting to listen to other people and just get their viewpoint. You, know, you, you should always take something away from every hour you spend. So they're, they're very valuable. Well, that's, that's my brief and that's my agenda. And I thank you for confirming that I might be on the right track, but we'll, we'll keep on trying. Thanks, Tom. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a 
to the end of another great episode of uh, Flat Out RC. Really glad to be back, I must say. And a big thank you to all of those that are still listening to the Flat Out RC podcast and uh, really appreciate that you choose to download it and listen to it. Uh, hoping that we continue the, the, the rage in 2021, that we continue to have more great guests. Uh, Going to try a few different things throughout the year, I think. Uh, just to mix it up, uh, you know, I've got nothing to lose really when you think about it. Uh, I don't get paid. No sponsors yet. Anybody want to sponsor this podcast? It'd be great. Just send me a message. Get on the Flat Out RC website www.flatoutrc.com.au. Uh, and whilst you're at it, visit our YouTube channel, the Flat Out RC YouTube channel, Instagram, and Facebook. Of course, don't forget to subscribe and subscribe to this podcast as well. A big thank you to Tom uh, Laird for joining me all the way from Scotland. Great. Uh, great person to have if anybody's got any guests they think would be great on the podcast please send me a message again on the flat out rc website it's great because the contact us section just can fill it out or send me go on messenger on facebook or whatever or send me a dm on instagram uh, and uh we'll see if we can get them on for you but uh happy to hear from anybody and, and i'm not just bringing you the biggest names in the hobby i love talking to anybody even there's a lot of people say to me oh, i don't want to be on the podcast i don't have anything to say it's like you know everybody's got a story and, and i know that some of it you really enjoy hearing just people's stories about their activities in the hobby so stay tuned plenty more to come for flat out rc and we'll be back next week with i don't know a guest i suppose anyway talk to you then